This is Dr. Binnig, and you're listening to The Help Show. Hi, Sabai. How are you doing today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing really great. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We call that the TTT um, for <laughs> um, <laughs> interviewing with The Help Show. Uh, I am beyond grateful. Um, I want to give the audience a little bit about how I met you. And then I'm going to give you the floor and ask you some questions, and we're going to take it from there. Um, so, um, I, well, I didn't meet Sabah. I kind of stalked her on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know how you filter through and you see you, you might do mental health or you put hashtag, and actually you popped up. And I'm always looking oh, okay. at, um, looking, looking for um, advocates. You know, I don't know if you know, but I'm a mental health counselor. And um, I'm a graduate student and a lot of other things. But when I went cra- when I went um, across your Instagram, I was amazed. Thank and you. I felt that it's very, it's bold for someone to put themselves out in the community, in the world, not just the community, in the world, about who they are and whom they are. With with no regrets. And, and I saw that um, looking at your Instagram. And I thought you were, she's a very pretty girl, um, but she's very articulate, Thank very you. smart, very intelligent. And it, that just kind of, that, that stuck with me. And so I would always like look at her post and see what she has going on. And, you know, how's her day? Because, you know, the way that the world works now, you can connect with people all over the world and actually spies actually from she lives in, um, in, in Florida. <laughs> and so today, you know, some told me, I was looking at it, looking, I said, I, you know, I really need someone that's a strong advocate for mental health because this month is about mental health and how important it is and how, as us as a community, how are we dealing with the things that go on in our, our day-to-day life? And so, you know, I found you. I, I said, let me, I'm, I said, you know what, let me just try it out and see. Oh, she'll pick up the phone. <laughs> you know, she call me back. And I have a cream, I have my hands crossed. Like, oh, she called me back. Oh, she texted me back. <laughs> and she did text me back. And so I'm beyond ecstatic. I'm excited. I'm, I mean, I'm just, I'm, the word I'm using, I'm grateful that she responded. And she's here right now. <laughs> and so, I am wanting to buy people to know who you are, where are you from, how did you start your journey of being a mental health advocate? Okay, that is, um, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's something I can answer, maybe not as (laughs) concise (laughs) as I'd like to be, but Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much for having me. And I want to say rest assured because I am a social media stalker as well. I had to stalk you in return once (laughs) once you gave me a follow. And I saw that, oh, my goodness, another mental health advocate that is always so important. Um, I kind of tripped onto Instagram. not really having an intention, and then as my life has become to become more and more God aligned, I saw that Instagram and social media could be a platform for awareness um 
it took me a while to realize how to use it that way, but that's where I am now in this journey, and hopefully it will continue to grow. This journey of mental health and mental health advocacy is just unfolding before me step by step. And it actually, it began in a place where um, it's funny that you ask who are you and where are you from because my mental health journey, my personal mental health journey and the journey of my family has changed that answer tremendously. Um, When I would go on job interviews or when I was um, younger and meeting people and people would ask me about myself, my first answer was always, I'm a big sister. I'm the eldest of seven. That was how I defined myself. Who are you? That was always my first answer. Uh, Eldest, big sister, seven kids. And it started a lot of conversation because that's a pretty big family. (laughs) And uh, I was the eldest and I was doing a lot of work. I learned a lot being a big sister. Um, And my little brother was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was about 18. And because I felt such a responsibility uh, as a big sister, I had to take it seriously. Um, But that exact same answer, once I discovered that not only did my brother have schizophrenia, but that it Mm. caused, it triggered my depression, I had to learn how to answer that question, who are you, from a place of 100% positive mental health. And therefore, I could not answer as Big Sister because outside Mm. of that, I didn't have an answer. If Mm. I did not know who I was outside of being a Big Sister or outside of career goals and my mental health journey and becoming an advocate has led me to be able to answer that as a soul, you know, a human being who needs connection, who needs positivity, who needs abundance, who needs to be able to manifest ideas and purpose. So it's still formulating, but I now know when you look to other people to define you, you will constantly find yourself in flux or misidentified and in pain because of it. Even if you think it's something positive like family or kids, you have to be able to define yourself for yourself and with no other um, people because that becomes conditional. Your identity right. is based on someone else's power. So I have become empowered to identify myself for myself. So I am now a person who is connected to God and purpose and those things don't change. <laughs> and if they do change, it's always for positive, positive uh, purposes. Okay. So that is who I am, uh, where I'm okay. from. Goodness gracious. I consider myself a southerner. I was raised okay. in Georgia. I wasn't born there, but I was raised in Georgia from the time I was a baby. I lived in New York for seven years. Now I'm in Orlando uh, going to law school. So that's where I'm from. I'm from my experiences. <laughs> and the mental health journey has been a huge part of that. So it definitely started. Uh, I could say I'd been an advocate. I was a feminist. Mental health was not on my radar until my brother got sick. And uh, the more unwell he became, the more I learned and the more I realized that I didn't want any other family members to go through what we were going mm. through, and that's how I became an advocate. Because at first I was just a concerned big sister, and then I was called to advocacy. Huh. You know what? Sometimes it takes us to go through things to understand them. It really does. Um, I was 
pursuing a career in the entertainment industry. And um, I was in New York, and my brother's health was just declining. And as a result, the health of my entire family was mm-hmm. declining. And it has not been rebooted. It has not been reinstated to a healthy place. And we are still working on it. But um, I was I say I was called to advocacy because I was on a completely different career path, and I was successful. And I began to make so many moves in the mental health advocacy in Atlanta that people began recommending me to other people. And uh-huh. I would get on the phone with these mothers who just didn't know what to do, who were completely at their wits' end. And I hung up the phone one day with one mom in particular whose son – uh, she couldn't get a hold of him. She didn't know what to do in the court system. And I just said, the next time someone calls me, I want to be able to legally help them. And that's how I transitioned from the entertainment industry to law school and mental health advocate. Oh, wow. Sabah, that's so amazing. So the the question I was going to ask you, what um, mental diseases your um, brother have, but you, um, you let us know he has schizophrenia. For those that are not aware about schizophrenia, um, is there some way that you could describe or the symptoms that your brother has or the symptoms that you hmm. see or what a schizophrenia is? That is really, it's not difficult. It just, it takes a lot. Um, people have right. a lot of preconceived notions about schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother, unfortunately, is a part of the one million, and that's not a big number compared to the rest of the U.S. Mm. that suffer from severe schizophrenia. So unfortunately, my brother is one of those cases that uh, he may or may not become violent. He cannot function. Just to give you sort of like a frame, my brother has never had a checking account. He's never had a job. He's never had a social media account. Those things don't serve huh. any purpose in his life because he's so disconnected from huh. reality. Um, and he was often violent. And I say that with caution because most people who suffer from schizophrenia are able mm-hmm. to manage it. Um, they right. are sick. They do perceive things differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may have audio and visual hallucinations. Okay. Um, but the most severe, schizophrenia is one of the most serious. So right now, bipolar is really popular, anxiety, right, depression. People right. are able to say those easily. They're ready available, ready available to the human experience. Schizophrenia is one of those. Oh, as advocates, we really suffer with trying to get people to understand. Um, people accept this really Hollywood version of it. That's all they really understand, mm-hmm. like some psychopathic thing happening mm-hmm. like on The Shining. I will tell right. you what schizophrenia often was with my brother and okay. with a lot of the people that I've met and advocate for. It was this weirdness. Okay. And I say that to say this is the symptom that is so often overlooked because it's not outwardly violent. It seems to be calm. Um, okay. When most people saw Kanye West on Ellen talking about Uh Mark Zuckerberg and not being able to stay on topic, what they really were looking at, from my experience as an advocate, was schizophrenia, was psychosis. Trying to speak to my brother, he would always say something that was 
uncomfortable. Hmm. Probable but not oh, possible but not probable. He would always right. move the conversation somewhere that just seemed deeply uncomfortable, but not hmm. severely like like not really impossible. He was always saying things like when we would look at each other and kind of go, why did he say that? Or wasn't it weird when we spoke to him yesterday? Wasn't it odd that he did this? And it just escalated from there. Um, Some of the symptoms people overlook are are that that unsettling. And um, I'm sorry, I'm missing the word right now, the schizophrenia, um, mental illness. They call it something else. Um, It's a personality um, disorder. Right. It's a personality disorder. But that what I'm describing as the weirdness it's, it's not described as weirdness when you go look at the blanket list of symptoms. It's like inability to perceive reality, and that mm. is usually the weirdness. Um, also very, I guess, that's I say it in lay terms. People can understand he was being super weird. And you don't often say that about your friends or people who are healthy. You don't say, I had a conversation with somebody today, and oh, my God, they scared me they were so weird. That's I think what I have the word. Like. Is it? I think I have the word. Is it somatic? Is it somatic delusion or neuristic delusion? Okay. That's oh. you're in the delusion usually when they're doing that, but it's a word okay. that they use, and I'm always like, it took me forever to realize why isn't this <laughs> this symptom? Why am I coming not coming across it when the medical people speak about it? Um, and it'll okay. probably come to me when the interview is over. Um, another <laughs> okay. thing with schizophrenia is the inability to hold eye contact. Hmm. Um, that was big. Uh, my brother often seemed like he was looking through you or looking hmm. down, just not able to um, keep eye contact. And that was usually him what we've learned later, he was trying to discern reality and his pupils would go in and out of dilation. And people with schizophrenia often think direct eye contact is aggressive. It's a, a, you know, they don't read the social cues the same way we do. At least that was very true for my brother and a lot of the people that I've advocated for since. Oh, wow. Um, So it's just, it was really, it's always hard to describe because what I'm describing, someone else may never go through this. Like I said, my brother is severe. Um, and from there, from his daily activity was bizarre, uncomfortable, scary because we loved him. Other people who yeah. met him probably didn't know how terrifying it was. And it right. de-escalated there. Um, when we knew we were in trouble, he would stop bathing. He would stop speaking. He would stop coming out of his room. Um, and those are all very popular symptoms. Um, the inability to process being full is one thing that it affects. So when you when you're schizophrenic, your the front of your brain is the pathways start to deteriorate, and they are not processing information the way we do, and we call that gray matter. So part of that is the, that when you'll say anything, reckless behavior. And also, so my brother could go in the kitchen and eat all the food. Or he could do something like burn his toast completely black and just sit there and eat it. And these are things that other people hear and they seem comical. But if you came home and someone you loved was doing that, you would be terrified. Um, And that was the kind of thing he would do. He tried to start speaking to us through telepathy. Um, He became very... um, preoccupied with his body, often staring at himself in the eye, in the mirror for 
not hours, but what felt like hours at the time. Um, these kind of things were just daily in our household. Then he would disappear and just deteriorate from there. Um, he was often homeless, and that How long was, was he homeless? What, How long was he homeless for? Never more than a few weeks, and usually he found okay. his way back home or he would be arrested and he would get a call and, and he would be found. But the homelessness is what triggered my advocacy um, okay. because he was out in the streets and, you know, you think you can call somebody. My brother is so sick he's sleeping under a bench, and you call the only people to call, which is still shocking and probably the most hurtful uh sort of institution set up for help in our societies, you can only call the police, who have zero tools to deal with schizophrenia. So you call the police, and they look at you, and they earnestly tell you that that's his choice. And you're like, no way. And your world literally starts to fall apart because you know that if your loved one was well, there's no way they'd be sleeping outside, exposed to all the elements when they have a bedroom with a full-size bed and everything they need in a home. And they're just in the streets doing God knows what. And I could not believe that that was something that our legal system allowed, that someone could look at me and tell me my brother at 19 was choosing this, that this was a choice. Um, that was that was devastating. So I, I would read those codes and kind of think, how did this come to be? Who, who would think that this is okay? Hmm. And then from there I learned that the only way the police could interfere was if he hurt himself or someone else. So wow. my family was in a state of seriously waiting for my brother to hurt himself or someone else, and that is what we did. He would hurt wow. us, usually our family members. We would call the police and feel relief. Can you imagine a black family calling the police and feeling relief because at mm. least they know their loved one is safe and you not hurting what? other people or hurting themselves? Can I tell you something truthful? Mm-hmm. That's how a lot of the black families that I do um, that I actually um, counsel with sometimes they rather for their loved one to be in jail so they know that the loved have. one is safe. You know that they know that the loved one is not harming themselves, and also that the loved one is not is not harming others. And that's that's sad, but it's it's true. And it's, um, it it's and it's everyday life, mm-hmm. you know. And it is. so, and some, and it's very sad. It's very very sad. I um. It's um. Yeah. It's it's such a pathetic failure of our capability as discerning human beings <laughs> to say, "You're sick. Let me call the police." and then put you in a cell in the scariest place to take someone who is already paranoid all the time and have uniformed people come with only weapons. The police Mm. don't have a single tool at their disposal to handle schizophrenia. Most of them, not most, I'm sorry, at best, they've taken a 40-hour course on how to deal with schizophrenia in a nonviolent way, and that is who we are calling to help. And they get arrested, Mm -hmm. put into a cage 
when they're already paranoid and are usually left to deteriorate depending on if there's a bed shortage in that state until they get into an institution. And that made us sleep at night, knowing our brother was in that situation because that was the best we had. Oh, wow. And so what, that was the crux of the advocacy. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so what laws and regulations are you researching to help your brother? Like, what have you found recently um, that you've been – because, you know, you're in law school. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's kind of right. like you you do a lot of research. You um, research probably um, in the mental health um, field. What what have you researched that – that could that's helping your brother also that for the listeners that have siblings that are dealing with the same situation or something similar to your situation um, well what have you found? Be, before there are laws um mm-hmm. there are a lot of laws and I, I will get to the legal part that's what I mean to say um yeah. I want to make sure I say this because families need to know um. Okay. There are organizations that can help the family. Hmm. There are organizations that can help someone who is not as severely sick as my brother. Um, If you are dealing with a family member, a loved one who is as sick as my brother, you you now must become an advocate. And I say that Hmm. from a very painful place but a very honest place because there is no help. For you, there is the National Association of Mental Illness. That's NAMI, and there is yeah. men, there's also Mental Health America. Okay. Both of those are phenomenal. But for someone as sick as my brother, they don't really help because once yeah. you are in the cycle of hurting yourself and hurting someone else, you are now yeah. in the hands of the police. So that's oh. where my split. I had to go from advocate to someone who was big sister to legal advocate. Um, if I would say if your family is in this situation, before you start dealing with the laws, get help for you and your family first because you are going to need it. Go to NAMI. They have a wonderful peer-to-peer um, outreach group. They have wonderful people who um, have recovered, who were as sick as my brother and recovered. So you need to see that because I didn't okay. believe it, and it still brings so much peace to my soul to meet these people who say, yes, that was me uh, looking at people and seeing demons and had to be um, forced into consent by the state, and now I'm better. So you need to get with NAMI so you can have something. Your loved one is a different story. If they're over 18 and severely mentally ill, you will have to become an advocate, and you will have to start researching the laws just like I did and just like my family. Mm-hmm. And So then I'll tell you about the laws that I researched. You need to find out the code for your state. Um, you've got to find the language because if you call the police and they you have to know if you can call the police and ask for an officer trained in mental illness. So sometimes you can get that. Sometimes your state offers that. Georgia has that. It may take an hour, so you can't call them in in immediate death crisis. But if you see your loved one starting to get um, psychotic, like my brother, where they're not bathing and maybe doing something that you know the steps that lead to danger, your state may have an early intervention process, so you need to know if that exists. You need to know how much pain or how much hurt your loved one can be in 
and when you can get the police to interfere. So a lot of states what we have what we call a deterioration standard or a need for treatment standard. And that just looks like um, the language that triggers the police. So in Georgia, it is immediate harm, life-threatening death to others. That's why I had to learn, oh, he's going to hurt himself or somewhere else. So everybody has laws in their state that trigger when help, when you can get help. Oh, now let me just say this to say, your loved one can always consent. If they can okay. consent, you bypass the police, you go directly to a mental institution. So please don't let me scare you into thinking everybody has to call the police. Only when your loved one will not consent, that's when the police have to be involved. If you can get your loved one to say, I'm sick, I need help, you are all good. So many states have wonderful programs. You need not be afraid, I assure you. Um, the family is kept into the loop if your um, loved one is not um, in denial. They call that anasignosia or anasignosia when your loved one is so sick they don't know they're sick and then they start to refuse help. So that is the biggest barrier to um, getting treatment for your loved one and needing to get the police to interfere. So my brother's symptom that triggers the police is anasognosia because he doesn't think he's sick. He thinks we're all out to get him and we're making it up. And if he just drinks the right tea, maybe he'll be all better, like literally. And it, and and his situation is dire. So that's what you're dealing with when people don't know they are sick. Um, okay. Other laws and regulations that you need to look for are just um, what kind of court systems you have. Some um, states do allow for a judge trained in mental illness and diversion to your, you can ask for your case to be um, brought before those type of judges. Um, you can also ask for, you need to know the codes um, if you're dealing with prison that automatically get you an evaluation. Um, you okay. need to know the sheriff in your area. Uh, be on the first name basis. So if your loved one doesn't consent to treatment, you don't have to be fearful of retaliation once you make contact because your emails and your calls, all that's monitored. Talk okay. to the sheriff, know them by name, because until you can get your loved ones to consent, they're going to be in those circles. Um, so that I want to rest assured that when you um, have a loved one who's dealing with the police are just they're just as frustrated as us. So. Right. Uh, they know they don't have the tools. They don't know why they're dealing with this. I sat in on a Senate hearing a couple of years ago during my internship, and the um, leader of the National Association of Sheriffs said, people ask me, what do you guys need? Is it more training? Is it more guns? Is it you know more vests, more cars? And he said, it's mental illness diversion. We Our jails mm -hmm. are overcrowded with people with yeah. schizophrenia who shouldn't be there in the, the first place. Um okay. So you have to just, every system that your um, loved one gets into, you need to be aware of. Oh, there's also community health boards. Um, okay. Your community has a community health board. Tap into that if your loved one is not suffering from anosognosia. That way you can tap into the resources of your community. And that's, um, so many people don't know of the resources that are already there legally provided by the state. Um, to help you with mental illness. Oh, wow. 
You know what? Your brother's very lucky to have you as a sister. Oh, thank you. He is thank so, you, you so what I mean, he is so lucky to have you that you have literally dissect his illness, what to do, how to do it, when to do it, where to do it. He's lucky. <laughs> he, he's beyond oh, yeah, lucky. There's one more community organization I wanted to let people know about, and they're mm-hmm. new. They're not everywhere yet, but um, like I said, Parents and loved ones are going to have to become advocates, and they need people like you. Um, It's called the Stepping Up Initiative, so their only goal is to reduce the number of people with mental illnesses in jail. I've set in on a couple of their national conference calls. They have great leadership who comes in and tells you how to collect the data, how to talk to the people in charge, how how to take action, how to get your county to sign up to be a part of the initiative. Um, oh, wow. I think Fulton County just signed up in Georgia and got a substantial <laughs> grant to work with the community through, and they're using the Stepping Up initiative. Um, I don't know, Texas. I will research and get back to you on that if you want to let your viewers mm-hmm. know directly, but that's just another community service and that, that that is looking out for us. We think we don't have a voice in the severe mental illness group, but we do. We do. Oh, wow. So, with you going to law school and you being such a huge advocate of mental health, what is your next move for mental health and how can we, how can the help show, how can we help you? Oh, wow. Well, I am still waiting to see exactly um, what my path has, uh, what God has laid out for me, what's next. Um, People need to know that we have the power um, yes. And I want to be in that realm, either empowering families to contact their lawmakers, empowering families to start their own support groups, empowering families to join NAMI and the other organizations that are already working, empowering families to, although you may think you're alone and you will feel alone, when we share our stories, we are no longer alone. We 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 use awareness in our voices to create unity. Um, my goal on my heart is to just get the language changed in Georgia. Uh, if we take out the intimate threat of death standard in Georgia, then we might be able to interfere sooner with people who are as sick as my brother. Uh, changing the language of legislation is what I see next and continuing to working in that space um, to get that done. I've been very lucky to intern for the Treatment Advocacy Center, a nonprofit um, out of the D.C. area in Virginia that works specifically with uh, helping states change that language and helping states uh, use advocacy to make positive legislative change for people with serious mental illness. So I hope to just continue on this path and uh, bring more awareness and make more families empowered to know that this it doesn't have to be this way. Just because it is this way does not mean we can't change this system for the better. Right. So the the question I also have for you, when you can't put your, when the legislation does not hear you, and when they do not care about the importance of mental health and the, and the advocates that um, help, you know, that spread the awareness of what's going on, you know, in mental health, what what do you do? Mm-hmm. What do you do, Sabah? Uh, 
a couple of things. That is hard. It, it's really learning the political animal has been probably one of the biggest, <laughs> the biggest education of my life. Wow. I don't think I knew what lonely was, what lonely felt like until I went to the Capitol for the first time and I'm calling these legislators out to come speak to me. And there is literally a velvet rope at the Georgia Capitol between you and the politician. And you're just trying to make them understand. You learn that they don't know anything about mental illness. You're like, how is this not on your radar? So I had to become an advocate and a teacher and make them aware. They're still asking. One politician told me, well, isn't that a family problem? And I was like, sir, my brother is in the community hurting people, strangers. Right. Like, right. And I was like, my mother is a math professor. Why should she know how to take care of a schizophrenic person? Like what in the mom? What that's not in what to expect when you're expecting. Who? Why should moms suddenly know? You know, med school level education. Like that's not in our hands to do. Like everybody is hurting when somebody has severe mental illness in your family. So when politicians don't know, I remember that. I remind myself that the first time I said. My brother has schizophrenia. Instead of just saying he's fine when someone asked me, I felt light. And, oh, this weight was lifted. And I want everybody who feels that, who is scared to say schizophrenia, who is scared to say depression, who is scared to say anxiety, who is scared to say bulimia and PTSD, I want them to feel that. And they, I want them to know the right people to speak to to get the laws changed. So when the politicians aren't working, I remember the people. I remember my purpose and my family. I remember that since I started on social media, I have sent get well notes to people in Australia. I have tried to connect. uh, Someone found out that my background is Islam, and he asked me to help him find somebody because he was in Jordan traveling and didn't have his therapist there. And when I contacted all the other social um, social media advocates, they responded like, tell him to try this, or I do Skype, give him my number. I remember those people. I remember that there's a, a, you know, a dad in New York who is such a proud father, but on Father's Day, well, when he went to the hospital, I sent him a card because we need each other. And if they don't have the fight to let the politicians know, I do. And whether it's going across the lines to be bipartisan when all the Democrats tell me, oh, the Republicans leave the House, go talk to them, of course I'm going to talk to them. I'm not going to let party lines or anything stop these, the, the people, the community, my people <laughs> who are suffering need a voice. And until I connect with other people who can be the voice, I will continue to do that. Uh, that's, I don't care what the politicians have to say. They don't know. I don't know why they ran. I will educate them. I will <laughs> do whatever I can to let them know, look, if you count me as a constituent, you are going to count my voice. I get sad. I want to stop. I think I don't know what I'm doing, and then I remember that this is not my path. This is God's path, so of course I have the tools. I just got to tap back into them with my own mental health. So that's number one. I put my mental health first so I can continue to do this work. Most most definitely. Your self-care is very, very important. Sabah, I'm going to call you once a week 
You're going to hear from me. You are amazing. I won't call you too much because I know you're in you're in school. We're both in school. So I understand about studying for tests and getting yourself prepared um, for, you know, um, what you're um, – for what you have going on within the community, but I have to stay in contact with you. Absolutely. I have to. Yes. And the help show is going to stay in contact with you. And whatever we could do, if whatever we can do, you let us know, and we will do. The help show, what you're already doing is what you can continue to do. And I am still trying to find a way to make people comfortable with reaching out to the politicians to let them know. You know, I could if I got 20 people in Georgia to write one politician and tell them we need mental health legislation change, that then becomes a big ticket issue for them. But that many people, they don't write unless it's like, you know, the NRA who have great lobbying skills among their people. But the NRA still wins votes by like, 200 calls. People need to know that government still still works. <laughs> when you're calling, politicians aren't getting calls all the time from citizens. One or two trickle in. When a group puts their voices together, it still works. These politicians still go, oh man, I need to care about this. People are looking. People are paying attention. I could do that right. with 20 people to write the same you letter have, to one politician. Most definitely. You have to make you have to make the politicians be accountable. Yeah, we do. We, we, we are there. The people we're not <laughs> most definitely. They don't even. I don't think people understand. We are the politicians' boss. Well, yeah. You know, if if we don't speak, then they don't have to work. So I mean, we have to speak. Don't look. Don't get beyond. <laughs> I said it was not going to be. We're going to talk about politics. Don't get me going, girl. <laughs> don't I get won't, me going. I won't. I won't. But I so, that's a whole other show. <laughs> that is a whole different beast. So please give an audience a way to follow you on Instagram and continue to follow in your journey and mental health awareness and how they could be an advocate too and, and just, you know, follow your day-to-day. Before we close out, I just kind of wanted to kind of turn back into the whole um, homelessness with your with your brother when he's homeless for a couple of weeks. And I saw, I think it was, I don't know if it was two weeks ago or a month ago, um, someone stole Sabah's bike, okay? <laughs> and she, she was on Instagram. And when she found the bike, it was painted white, and a homeless person had the bike underneath the tree, which she already, you know, she purchased another bike, but it was kind of like, what do you do when someone needs needs your transportation more than you do? And I thought that was very interesting. And when you told me that sometimes your brother goes, you know, being homeless for a couple of weeks, then it kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense mm-hmm. to me, you know, kind of like, what if that was my brother? <sighs> exactly. Yeah. I don't, and yeah. it, that, um, It's it's always bittersweet when I realize the lessons are learned in it um, because it's like, oh, you know, I could have learned this another way, but maybe not. But it has changed my point of view of everything because I didn't even – I thought I was mentally healthy. I thought I was mentally healthy because I knew what I wanted to do and I could check some boxes. I would go, oh, I got a passport. I got a bachelor's degree. I'm pursuing my career goals. But I was not in 
alignment with my soul. I was not in alignment with my mental health. I thought those things were mental health. I did not know that peace of mind is mental health. That is success. So when I see people who don't have food, clothing, and shelter, it's like, where does your peace of mind come from? So and when, when I see people who are just angry, cursing people out who have food, clothing, and shelter, when I see people who can't forgive, when I see people who can't be rational and get through traffic without breaking down or who people who can't lose $10 without everything falling apart or don't have their way, I am now, I'm no longer judging them. I'm like peace of mind. Like, where they have that, we're different people. Where are they missing their peace of mind? Where are they mentally? So me, like being able to let go of that bike was my peace of mind now rests somewhere else. It no longer rests with things. And that has been a huge transition, huge transition. So that was, um, yeah, the stealing of my bike, it messed with my sense of comfort in the world. But it did not make me angry enough that it disrupted my peace of mind for another human being. It's like, you know what, that bike, great, I don't know. Look, there are other bikes. You probably can get to and from the store faster now. Maybe you have sent mouths to feed. I don't even know. But what I do know is what I can control. I could get another bike and I could forgive somebody who may or may not deserved it, but my peace of mind and my soul is free when I can do something like that. And I, I didn't look at it as that big. I just was like, look, I got to get to school. <laughs> right. That is and I'm, it, thank you. I'm just glad that that uh, touched you because sometimes I don't know what I'm doing with <laughs> <To> Instagram. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, people just don't care. And then I get these messages from you and, like, those people I mentioned from other parts of the world. And I'm like, thank you, God, for, for showing me that um, it's not small. It's working, and I'm just one little bitty person. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. just as special as all the other little bitty people. So please, Bob, please, please, please tell the audience where they can follow you. Cause, because, they have, look, I enjoy this. I want everybody to enjoy this. <laughs> I'm not selfish. Thank you so much. <laughs> um I'm not everywhere. I'm kind of on Twitter at Muhammad one but I'm still trying to manage that. I don't know how to Twitter speak. Twitter has its own language. I trust Twitter to give me information, but I don't give information on it. But I am there. So if Twitter is your big thing, come find me. We can do it back and forth, and I can start learning how to get better on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on <laughs> Facebook as Habiba Will. Um, but where I post most of my videos and do most of my advocacy is on Instagram, and you can find me there at Strong Enough for Therapy. Um, that's at Strong underscore Enough for Therapy, and that's my mantra because discovering therapy was like discovering myself. So I like to um, use that name, um, and that's where I am, Strong Enough for Therapy, and it's been wonderful. Thank you for listening to The Help Show. Thank you. Bye, Sabah. Bye. Do you have computer problems? Is your computer running slow? (laughs) Did you forget your passcode? 
Okay. Is it running slow because you've been downloading inappropriate things? <laughs> okay, raising my hand. I've done it before. <laughs> Call Half Price Geeks. That's one eight seven 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 geeks And tell them the help show sent you. Are you tired of that boss? Are you fed up with that bully? Are you annoyed with your mama? Well, you know what, guys? Check out the anger room on 3014 Cumbers. If you want to take your anger out, if you want to throw some plates, if you want to jump on some desk, if you want to write on some walls, graffiti on the walls, if if you want to just take the frustration of sometime the day-to-day life that if you actually <laughs> do what you really felt you want to do, you might be incarcerated, <laughs> go to the anger room. Again, that's 3014 Cumber Street. To make an appointment today, it's one 844 i get mad And tell them the help show sent you.